Just uh, want to acknowledge uh, this morning uh, Michelle and her worship leading. Michelle's taking a break from worship leading for a while. And um, yeah, Michelle, I just want to acknowledge just the passion um, that you bring, the hard work that you've brought, um, the airs behind the scenes in terms of what you've done, in terms of worship leading. And um, yeah, you've just, there's an anointing on your life, really, in terms of uh, worship. Um, and we just want to say thank you for the blessing you've brought. Uh, and leading so many people uh, in worship um, for quite some time. So bless you. So, you can clap if you want. <laughs> many of you are aware that uh, I'm um, committed to uh, churches, uh, w- helping churches work together. Uh, across the city. It's something I've been involved in for many years, uh, both when I was here at Eastside, uh, at Eastside and then in Topor, and then uh, back here again. Uh, and it, it really comes from this conviction, uh, really, that God's heart is for the church of the city. It would be much easier not to be involved in this. It's hard enough trying to lead a church, bless you guys, uh, <laughs> but it's hard enough to try and lead a church, let alone try and work sort of across uh, churches. It would be much simpler for me just to focus here on ICBC. But I, I can't get rid of this conviction uh, that God is far more interested in the health uh, of the church of the city than He is in just an individual congregation. You know, how is God glorified if we here at ICBC are doing really well at the expense uh, of the church down the road? How is God glorified by that? How is the kingdom advanced? And I've come to see actually the biggest obstacle to churches working together in unity is actually us pastors. Um, us pastors are the gatekeepers. We're the ones that, you know, if the church down the road is doing well, we get, you know, all upset about that and think, oh, what am I doing wrong and, um, and feel threatened. Um, so one of the things I've done over the last couple of years is we've hosted some lunches here for ministers. Um, we've done it for two years now. The first year, someone in the church here actually said, I want to make that my ministry. And for a year... Uh, made that their ministry to provide uh, the lunches. And um, we've got now about half the churches in the city um, connecting with that uh, regularly or semi-regularly. Um, and out of that was born uh, the combined service we had recently and, and the prayer booklet. Uh, it fits with our priority of serving the city uh, and this, this passion I have to see the church working together in unity. Uh, I think it's... Uh, this is very much uh, a reflection of the prayer found in John 17 that I want to have a look at today. Uh, this really should be called the Lord's Prayer. Now, I know the Lord's Prayer is our Father who art in heaven. Um, that, that's actually not the Lord's Prayer. That's actually our prayer. <laughs> All right? It's for us. So we should rename it. We'll just change a couple of centuries of history. Uh, <laughs> All right, today, and we'll change it. So the Lord's Prayer is actually our prayer. It's for us. This really is uh, the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. You know, if you want to know the heart of someone, then, then sit in on their prayers. Not the prayers they pray in public, but their private prayers. If you sat in on someone's private prayer life, you would get their heart. You would naturally see their heart. And the amazing thing about this prayer in John 17, we're just going to look at one little bit of it, is there's a portion specifically addressed where Jesus is praying for you and for me. 
All right, that's a bit I want to look at. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? There's a prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Okay, 2,000 years ago, there's a prayer that Jesus prayed specifically for us. John 17, I'm praying not only for these disciples, that's the disciples that were there, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's that's right, you meant to say us. <laughs> us, that's us. Thank you. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I in you. And may they be in us, so that the world would believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am, am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can all see the glory, see all the glory, sorry, you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. It's a prayer for unity. It's a prayer that links unity and evangelism. It's a prayer that links unity with our relationship uh, with Jesus. It's a prayer that links uh, unity uh, being a reflection of the Trinity itself. This is the last thing on the mind of Jesus before he left the disciples. It seems to me that Jesus knew that the biggest threat to the church in the future would be that of disunity. The biggest threat. That's what, heart. That's what he's worried about, in a sense. He's worried, and so he's praying this prayer because he, 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 he's fearful of the church splintering. Lots of other passages. I'll just quickly look at some of them. Ephesians 4. Uh, Paul uh, talks about this whole thing of unity. He says he gives gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He says the responsibility is to equip God's people to do work, build up the body, this will continue until we all come to such unity to our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord. Galatians 3, or if being united with Christ and baptism have put on Christ like new clothes, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for all one in Christ. Romans 15, may the God who gives you endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ. Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you call to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then that Psalm, uh, Psalm 133, a wonderful Psalm of uh, blessing. How good and pleasant when the brothers and sisters live together in unity. For well, there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life forevermore. I think we've lost something of this, that this is of primary uh, concern. That unity is no longer a vision or a goal. It's no longer a central prayer. So what causes disunity? What causes disunity? Well, it's really quite simple. Disunity is caused by annoying, stupid, and wrong people. All right? It's very easy. Now, it's very important at this point that you just keep your eyes focused on me. Right? Don't catch anyone's eye around you as I unpackage this, okay? You don't want to catch anyone's eye. There are people we find just annoying. 
I mean, you, you'll better think quickly of who they are. I mean, they're people that just get on your nerves, so you're not really sure why. They talk too much, they invade your space, uh, they tell bad jokes, they remind us of someone we don't like from the past, um, whatever. There's just annoying people around. And um, generally, in a large church, you can avoid them. Yeah, they can navigate your way around. It's a big auditorium, you don't really run into them. Um, although sometimes they turn up in your home group, and that's a bit tricky, but you can change home groups. Um, sometimes, strangely enough, um, when you change home groups, there's someone else that annoys us. Um, if the person's sitting beside you, of course, it's a bit more tricky um, to avoid them. Uh, it's a bit like the story, I might have told the story, I don't know, about you know, the man who was shipwrecked on the desert island, and he'd been there for a whole year, and when they came to rescue him, uh, his rescue, he wanted to show his rescuers his house. He built this beautiful house, little hut thing uh, on the island, and he was showing it all, and the guy said, well, what about, what are those other huts you've got over there? Oh, he said, that second one, that's my church, he said. That's my chapel where I worship. Oh, very impressed. They said, well, what's that other hut over there? Oh, he said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> All right, and, and not only are annoying people in church, but there are stupid people in church. And of course, stupid people can be annoying as well. Um, but stupid people are people that just do things that we think are plain stupid. You know, they quit their job because God told them to. They take their kids to movies that we think are clearly unsuitable. They drive too fast and have accidents. We know these people are stupid because they do things that we would never do. Uh, they say stupid things like, you know, you're sick because of your sin and all such things. So there's annoying people and there's stupid people, and then there's people that are just wrong. There are wrong people. Now, people who are wrong can also be very annoying, um, especially if they're trying to convert you to their wrong ways. And wrong people can be stupid too, because they often act on what is clearly wrong. Wrong people have different views from our own. They vote for different political parties. They misinterpret the Bible. They generally are just wrong. And wrong people hold a different truth from our own, which of course makes them wrong, because there's only one right way. Okay, so I want you to think for a minute of somebody that fits into one of these three categories who is in this church. Don't look at anyone else. Now, I want to tell you something, all right, and... You probably need to just hang on to the seat in front of you because it's a terrible, terrible truth. Or else just hang on to the side of your chair. All right? Hang on to the front of your chair. All right? Just hang on to your chair. All right? Because this is very shocking. All right? The shocking truth is that you and I are someone else's annoying, stupid, or wrong person. (laughs) All right? You and I are someone else's annoying, stupid, or wrong person. There's someone in this room who thinks you are annoying, stupid, or wrong. I'd prefer you didn't look at me at this point. You can look at someone else. Okay? Some people think you're all three, okay? which is even worse. So this is the challenge of unity. All right? So I want to look at the five things that caused this unity, but I thought actually what I just said is probably nearer the truth. Um, of, just keep that in mind. Keep it in mind that you are someone else's annoying, stupid, or wrong person uh, in this room. What causes disunity? And one of the things is power. Um, Ray Robinson, as he went around the churches a few years ago, across all denominations, said he repeatedly saw in whatever denomination that disunity was caused by people seeking power. Um, it's really interesting that this prayer is found in the Lord's, um, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. If you go to Luke and have a look at Luke, in the middle of the Lord's Supper, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? It's not about power, said Jesus, it's about serving. How can I serve? Not how can I get my own way, but how can I serve? A servant does not seek power. 
A servant, if a servant gets power, uses it to serve others. There's an old saying that never put someone in a leadership role unless they've been a good team player. There's a lot of truth in that. Power, the seeking of power causes disunity. And then there's personality. We read in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 that uh, the early church was um, fighting uh, around different personalities. Because some followed one leader, some followed another leader, and it was causing all this division. We naturally feel drawn to different personalities uh, of leaders. Some you know, people relate more closely to, to Jeremy, some might relate more closely to another leader, uh, myself or one of the other leaders. Some personalities we find harder to get on with. It's natural. But we have to move beyond personalities. We are followers of Jesus. And this is what Paul says in this passage. as He's talking to the Corinthian church. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit lives in you? God will bring ruin on anyone who ruins this temple. Phew, that's powerful. For God's temple is holy and you Christians are that temple. So he says, so don't take pride in following a particular leader. Which leads on to the question of pride as a third cause of disunity. Because we all have a tendency to think that we're right and the other person is wrong. And churches have divided over the years, fighting over issues of right or wrong. So the church in Centerville in America, all right, Centerville has 5,000 people. So what's, a, what's the equivalent of 5,000 people? Is that Gore? Would Gore be 5,000? Right. So imagine, I don't know, I should have checked. Anyway, 5,000 people, okay? In 1911, they split over whether to take the offering up before or after the sermon. In 1915, they split over flowers in the sanctuary. Between 1915 and 1929, there were seven more splits. They're now up to 48 splits, okay? This is the church, uh, so that's 48. Okay, so the last one was over whether it was a violation of the Sabbath to check emails. So that group left... All right, now listen to this. They left the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church, and they formed the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminsterian, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, Regulative, Credo, Communist, Amillennial, Presuppositional Church of Centerville. It's hard to say that. They have six members. I mean... It's bad, but it, it's that bad. It, yeah, it's funny, but God must weep. The reality is there are many non-essential areas of doctrine that there are debate over. Now, what I'm going to say, uh, again, some of you will be upset at what I'm going to say next, but I'm going to make a list of the areas of non-essential areas where the Christians debate over. We debate baptism, whether it be infant versus uh, adult. We debate baptism in the Holy Spirit. We debate divorce, whether it's okay for a divorced person to remarry. We debate uh, church government, forms of church government. We're congregational, we're apostolic and other forms of church government. We debate the role of woman, whether women should be leaders or not. We debate what headship means within marriage. We debate end times and whether there'll be a rapture and whether it's premillennial or amillennial or some other millennial. Um, we debate creation. Uh, uh, does the Bible teach evolution? Does it, create, does it teach creation in seven days? We debate the place of Israel. 
Is Israel being replaced by the church? Is Israel still central to the purposes of God? We debate whether tongues and other miraculous gifts are for today. That's some of the ones that come to mind. Are any of these doctrines core doctrines of the faith? And the answer is no, they're not. Now we might have some views on them, we might hold some strongly held views, but none of them are core doctrines. Now some of you are upset at the moment because one of your pet things is on that list. And you're upset because you think it is a core doctrine, and it's not. We need the humility to realize that people hold different views on these matters. And these people love God and they love the Bible just as much as we do, but they've come to a different view. Now we can discuss and debate, we can hold views, but we're not to stop loving those who hold different views. We should unite, I believe, around two things only, the cross and mission. They are the two areas, the two areas that are non-debatable, and that as Christians we should unite around. The cross, that Jesus Christ is God, died on the cross and rose again, and that God has called us to redeem this world. Those are the two areas we are called to unite around. Everything else we should hold lightly. It's very silent in here, probably offended a few. Um, The Bible holds humility in very high regard. The third Fourth thing, sorry, that can bring disunity is words. Proverbs says that words can bring life or death. We see the people of Israel wandering around the desert. What do they do all the time? They complain. They complain about the leaders. They complain about God. They complain about everything. And what does it do? It creates disunity, creates a negative atmosphere or spirit. Sometimes people come to me and complain about something in the church, and depending on what kind of mood I'm in, um, I say, um, I hear a complaint, actually it's much worse. <laughs> actually, if you knew the truth of what's happening in the church, it's much, much worse than that. <laughs> you think that's a problem? Actually, there's a whole lot of problems in the church. It's worse than what you think. But actually, this is still the bride of Christ. This is still God's body. See, we either are part of the problem or we're part of the solution. And if we're complaining about it, we're part of the problem. We have a choice. Am I going to be part of the problem or part of the solution? You see, the words we use can tear down people and community or can build it up. Words can be wounding, words can be healing. Disunity almost always involves words. Think of the times when you've been hurt by someone, at least half the time it'll be over what they have said. So we need to think about what we've said of late. Have I spoken words that have built up or have I spoken words that have tore down? Now the problem was I was writing this sermon on Wednesday and on Tuesday I'd fired off a couple of strongly worded emails because <laughs> I got hot and bothered over something. Um, and so then I was having to write the sermon, you see, and I got to this bit about words and then I had to think about the words I'd written in my email because I'd got cross. And, um, and my wife had told me not to send it to the next morning but I'd send it anyway, I didn't listen. Uh, <laughs> So I reread my email and had to think about whether, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't horrible in the email, but so in the end, uh, after writing my sermon, I rang the person up just to see, to ensure there was a relationship, really. Um, what I said in the email wasn't wrong, wasn't horrible. I probably would have been better to have rung the person directly uh, and talked it through. I don't know why I got so hot and bothered about it. Um, but I had to ask the question, what's my motivation? 
And have I contributed to unity or disunity? And the last thing that causes disunity in the church is unforgiveness. The reality is you put any group of people together, it's going to be hurts. Because we're sinners, we're broken people, we hurt each other. We shouldn't be surprised at this. Some people, when they get hurt, they say, well, I'm out of here. I'm off to another church. The bad news is they will hurt you too. See, what happens is when we have hurts that we've not dealt with, we're more, hurt, more easily hurt. It's a bit like, you know, if I'd, maybe I'd cut my arm or burnt my arm really seriously, and my arm was burnt, but I came to church on Sunday morning, and uh, I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt and a jacket, so you can't see that my arm is really sore and tender. So we're having a cup of tea afterwards, and, uh, you know, um, uh, oh, I can't think who to pick on. Um, <laughs> I won't pick on anyone. <laughs> um, uh, Debbie there, you know, accidentally bumps into my arm, you know, because she's a bit of a klutz, you know, so, you know, she just boomf into my arm, and I go, wow, Debbie, what do you do that for? And I react really angrily. Well, she doesn't know that my arm's all tender and sore. She can't see that. She's just being a klutz. And, um, you know, so I react really, really strongly to that. Um, uh, how was she to know that? She doesn't know that. And because that wound is still there, you know, what would have been a normal bump, and, and it's like, oh, this is Debbie, that's fine, you know, picking on Debbie, who's probably not a klutz, but, um, you know, um, you see, you get the point? Yeah. You get the point of what I'm saying? It would have, if my arm wasn't wounded, it wouldn't have made any difference. It's like, oh, it's Debbie, she's just bumped into me by mistake, doesn't matter. But because my arm is really tender and sore, then I react. It's like that when we carry around hurts that we've not dealt with. Someone else bumps us, says something just a little bit careless, and we react. I'm always amazed, actually, at how much unforgiveness, I don't know, I shouldn't be, but I'm always amazed at how much unforgiveness is lurking in the church. And you dig deep enough, and it's from years ago, you know? Oh, I did something years ago. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to work with that person again. And yet the core of Christianity is the fact that we've been freely forgiven. The church should be the hardest place to offend someone in, and yet often it seems like it's the easiest place. You know, next time you're hurt by the church or by a person or by its leadership in some way, don't run off in a huff. Commit yourself to the process, however hard, of forgiveness. I'm not saying deny your feelings, but don't remain there. Don't remain a victim. Don't remain hurt. Remember, you're only in the church because of the grace of God in the first place. It's the only reason you're here. So I want to implore you, if you're carrying around unforgiveness, you're hurting yourself, but you're hurting the body of Christ. You're hurting the church. And you need to deal with it. Jesus prayed for unity for his body because he knew it would be the key to its effectiveness in mission. When the church is divided, the community sees dysfunction and wants nothing to do with it. But unity is not a passive thing. It's not something that just happens. It only comes about through active, hard work. You see, the natural default setting is always towards disunity. The natural default setting, if you get a group of people together, it never naturally, just left to itself, will create unity. It will always move towards disunity. 
Always. Unless we're actively working on it. Unity is a sum of a whole series of small actions. Choosing to work with someone who we find difficult. Being being willing to listen to views that we know are different from our own. Speaking words gently. Choosing to speak positively about something even when we can think of a hundred negative things to say about them. Choosing to consciously forgive when we're wounded. Unity is going out of our way to speak to someone who maybe no one is speaking to. It is not a passive thing. The one thing the enemy hates is unity. That's why he's always looking to create cracks. How can I exploit that person's woundedness? How can I, I see that pride there. What can I do just to exploit that? Unity doesn't mean we're going to think the same. It doesn't mean we won't disagree. It means we're going to continue in love and in relationship. Unity is not natural. It is supernatural. It is absolutely supernatural because it comes from God himself and it comes because the Spirit of God is working in you and the Spirit of God is working in me and the closer we are to Jesus and the closer you are to Jesus, the more unity will flow. And unity comes because we're connected to God and when we understand that we're loved by God. We don't need to push our own way. We don't need to prove that we're right. We don't need to, we can let, uh, we can serve, we we can show grace when people do dumb things. We don't need to seek power, if I understand I'm a child of God's, we can serve freely. See, there's a link between our relationship to God and unity. There's a link too when we're disunited, then it hinders the flow of the Spirit of God. Unity is precious to God because it reflects the very heart of the Trinity. And you know, with all those flags there and all the different uh, people within this church of different uh, races, different backgrounds, whatever, the more diverse the church, the more supernaturally God can demonstrate His power in a united people. That's why I passionately believe in a diverse church. Because the more diverse the church, the more the community thinks, how on earth do these people love each other so much. Let's pray. We're going to stand to pray, actually. So let's stand together. It's going to take a moment. Uh, I know we're a little bit behind schedule, but we're just going to take a moment just to ask the Spirit to show us. Maybe if there's something that we need to put right, something we need to do, maybe someone that we need to forgive. Maybe the Spirit will just show us an action that we need to take, a positive action that will help build unity here within the body. Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, bring to mind there's something that you want us to do.
maybe there's things you need to confess to the Lord that you've done that He's showing you just are not very helpful. Words that you've spoken. thank you that you are gracious to us. We acknowledge to God that often we've not been acted in ways that have brought about unity. Acknowledge to God that we've often acted out of pride or had a hurt or had a trying to get our own way. God, we acknowledge that this morning. God, we commit ourselves to building unity because, Lord, we know that reflects your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing the three ones. Oh, yeah.